BDC, the Bank for Canadian Entrepreneurs, is a proud partner of the Startup Women podcast. BDC is here for women entrepreneurs in their efforts to move forward and achieve their business goals. To meet their specific needs, BDC provides financing, strategic advice, and has a wide selection of free resources. Find out more at bdc.ca forward slash women. BDC is here for what's ahead. The Scotiabank Women Initiative is a signature program designed to increase economic opportunity for individuals who identify as women or non-binary to be successful now and in the future. This unique offering helps women pursue their best professional and financial futures by providing unbiased access to capital and tailored solutions, bespoke specialized education, holistic advisory services, and mentorship. For more information, visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com. Welcome to the Startup Women Podcast, a show where we connect you, Canada's powerful cohort of women-identifying founders, to real stories and case studies of women-building businesses, supported by true, tactical advice from thought leaders and industry experts. I'm your host, Kayla Isabel, CEO of Startup Canada. Each month, I'll be sharing the mic with one founder and one expert. Together, we will dive into real stories and scenarios and uncover actionable advice for women entrepreneurs across Canada. From funding and hiring to sales and scaling strategies, on this show, we cover the most important topics so you can deconstruct the challenges of starting and running a business with knowledge that goes beyond the surface level. Let's get started. Not every entrepreneur has a plan to go international and expand their business into new markets, but sometimes demand from another country is all that you need to begin your journey to becoming a global business owner. This was the experience for BA Link, the founder and inventor of the A-Linker, a bright yellow, radically different walking bike and vehicle for change. I never had a plan to go international, but what happens is that, or what happened is that people from different countries started approaching us. like oh my God, this is going to change my life. Like I had a woman in New Zealand. Um, I need this thing. I've got MS. This is going to change my life. I need one. What do I need to do? And without, you know, an adamant person like that, in South Africa, we've got the same thing. In Switzerland, in uh, Czech Republic, in Italy, all Alinker users who have initiated this thing because it will change their life and it has changed their lives. Um, so the intent was never to go international. The intent was also not to go international. <laughs> like, um, it, I, I didn't have an idea about it. I just followed the energy of what was going on. Demand for your product in a new market is exciting, but it doesn't make the ins and outs of exporting and operating globally any easier. That's where our exporting expert, Tamika Jumel, comes in. Tamika is the regional director of Quebec for Invest in Canada, where she supports entrepreneurs to find global opportunities to expand their companies. Part of assessing if a company is ready to export relates to reviewing its financial health over the past, let's say, five years, but also assessing if it has the necessary capacity and the flexibility to endure that additional, those additional costs that will adversely affect the cash flow as well as the current sales and operations. And so I think that companies should ask themselves if 
what they can sustain with what they have, the resources that they currently have, but also if they can obtain enough capital or credit to produce the product or deliver the services, and also how they will reduce the financing risk. In this conversation, we bring together B and Tamika to learn about the global journey of the A-Linker and the resources and support organizations that can help get you export ready. Welcome to the show, B and Tamika. Thank you. We are so happy to have you. This is a topic that I am personally very passionate about in alignment with our Startup uh, Global program um, and in alignment with our Startup Women program as well, trying to profile incredible exporters, navigating international markets. Um, and, and this is a challenging feat for many of the founders that we work with. So we really appreciate you both joining us today for this Startup Women podcast episode. B, I want you to kick us off with A-Linker, which is you know, such a radically different walking bike. Can you tell us about your product and your business journey with the A-Linker? Well, <laughs> where do I start? <laughs> well, next week it is actually 10 years ago that I incorporated, but it's only the wow. sixth year that we're in the market right now. But it's been a bit of a trip, obviously. <laughs> um, bringing a complicated manufactured product to market is very difficult. Um, and when when I hear from people... Uh, saying like I always googled for something else there has to be something else out there um, they say you find a lot of things but it's only prototype and it never gets out of prototype stage so actually designing something people say like oh it's a good idea it's like no it was a good idea 10 years ago and it was a hell of a lot of work to get it actually to a product to get to people um, now, 10 years after incorporation and six years in the market, there's nearly 5,000 Olinkers um, with people in the world. We planted 65,500 trees because we're way more than carbon neutral. Um, we've completed 219 campaigns with people because we do crowdfunding campaigns to make mobility accessible. Yeah, it's, a, it's an incredible trip. And to, to build the company as I as I built it, I didn't build a company to sell bikes. That's why I always refer to the Alinker as a vehicle for change. Looking at what people need is how I designed the Alinker. It's not the next technical solution for a body with a problem because that's stigmatizing and it's minimizing people to become a body with a problem. Um, but to design for people, who are we and what do we want regardless of mobility changes? We're active and engaged people socially and physically, how can we continue to be that person? And what do I need to design to support that? So I designed four people. I didn't make the Alinker. It is by engaging with uh, hundreds of people, asking them like what they want to experience, what they want to be, how they want to move through life, what the current obstacles are with all the medical devices that are treating you, like a body with a problem that needs to be um, towed from... A to B. By designing for people, it's also designing, redesigning what healthcare looks like. Our company is, is designed to make mobility, community, and real food, which I see as the three components of real health, um, accessible. Incredible. And B, because this is a podcast and we aren't able to demonstrate or, or visualize what the A-Linker actually looks like, can you describe the product just so we can put kind of a visual together? When I started designing it, the premise was to make it look so good 
um, and, and cool that people would love to use it and that people would be the one on the cool bike instead of like, oh, what happened to you? So what it is, it's bright yellow for one thing, and it's an overarching frame with two 16-inch wheels at the front overarching to the back to one small back wheel rear wheel of eight inch with a seating assembly on top and it steers and it's got Ackermann steering it's super comfortable it hinges you can you can fold it up you can take the wheels out you can take the seat off quick release you can put it in the back of any car and you're the one on the cool bike and that is the word that comes up always when people hang mm. around on the link it's like oh my god that's cool what is it it's like i'll give you a clue i can't walk but at least you're talking already because mm. mobility devices create a social divide between people with and without disabilities. And that's where I started mm. designing the Alinker. Creating a social divide between people is a justice issue to me. So the justice issue around that became Great. the motivation to design the Alinker to make it so damn cool that everybody would want to use it. Amazing. And I could definitely attest to that, <laughs> having seen it. Um, and I think, you know, I'm really excited of bringing this perspective globally and exporting this type of product and the growth that you've had internationally. This is not just a challenge that we have in Canada. And these conversations that you're having internationally are, are just as important. So cannot wait to dig in more, Bea. Absolutely. To Micah, you know, you've worked all over the world of export, of trade, of global business for many, many years. Can you tell us you know, about your previous roles, where you are now, and what you specialize in? Yes, as you've mentioned, my career has been around international trade and investments, especially for Quebec and Canada, because I really enjoy being a connector of people and opportunities. So first, I was at the Quebec delegation in Paris and then at the Embassy of Canada in France. And I was working to open market opportunities for Canadian products and services. Then I worked as a consultant here in Montreal, helping Quebec-based companies build their export strategies and expand into emerging economies. After a few years of that, I joined EDC, Export Development Canada, where I worked for six years in different roles, and I contributed to bringing knowledge, resources, access to financing to Canadian exporters. And two years ago, I moved over to Invest in Canada, where I currently am. I'm the regional director for Quebec. And in my role, I promote Canada and Quebec in particular as a destination for investments from global companies. And we really facilitate and accelerate those global investments coming here from the first interest that companies have for Canada, all the way to the investment being realized here in Canada. So as I said, I enjoy being a connector of people, of opportunities, and I really think that the responsible, inclusive, and sustainable trade and investments participate to better living for Canadians and citizens all over the world. So B, before we dive into the larger topic of exporting, looking at different supply chains, going global overall, um, was taking your business global always something that you knew you wanted to do as this kind of global citizen that you are? <laughs> No, not really. Um, I, as I say, I, I never have a plan. I never had a plan to go international. But what happens is that, or what happened is that people from different countries started approaching us like, oh my God, this is going to change my life. Like I had a woman in New Zealand. Um, I need this thing. I've got MS. This is going to change my life. I need one. What do I need to do? And I was like, well, we don't have distribution in New Zealand and shipping one is ridiculous to ship 
the, the shipping cost from Taiwan to New Zealand. Or and then finally, after months of she just not stopping, I got on the phone with her and I said, um, "Let's just get on Skype and get to know each other." And as we got to know each other, I was like, "Oh, screw it! I'll just send you one because this is going to change your life." Then she turned around, get the Alinker, go on Radio New Zealand and start, starts uh, advertising that whole thing. And then we need to look for a distributor because now there's requests for Alinkers in New Zealand. That's kind of how it goes. And without, you know, an adamant person like that in South Africa, we've got the same thing in Switzerland, in uh, Czech Republic, in Italy, all Alinker users who have initiated this thing because it will change their life and it has changed their lives. Um, so the intent was never to go international. The intent was also not to go international. <laughs> like um, it, I, I didn't have an idea about it. I just followed the energy of what was going on. Yeah, listening to your customers, <laughs> giving them what they're asking for. I think that's a really simple lesson there. Tamika, when do you typically see entrepreneurs even just starting to get curious about going global and exporting? Is that kind of a natural milestone that they want to hit? Are some entrepreneurs really motivated by different factors? What does that pathway look like for the entrepreneurs that you've served? Yes, I think that many factors can come into play and it also varies with the industry. And these examples is exactly, um, we've seen it very often, um, Canadian companies who receive an inquiry or a purchase offer from abroad and they get one, they get more, they get from different countries and then they realize, oh, there may be a market for me um, and let me take advantage of that. And that's how they start formalizing their export strategy. So this is exactly what he was talking about. Um, for other companies, a factor could be the size of the Canadian market. So Canada is a big country. We are a G7 country, but with little over 37 million people, Canada has the smallest population of the G7 countries. So it's a relatively small market if you compare to France, for example, with 1.5 times our population or the U.S. that has nine times our population. So if you think about the retail industry or the aerospace manufacturing, life sciences, digital industries, at the end of the day, there are only 37 million people to consume it in Canada. So therefore, the Canadian market can become saturated very quickly and companies want to access bigger markets, bigger markets, sorry. Another reason could be to reduce risk. So by diversifying into new markets and being able to sell to more consumers, companies can avoid being vulnerable to economic downturn and cycles into one market, their home market, Canada. And also by selling abroad, it will allow them to spread sales, for example, taking advantage of seasonality. And the last reason I would mention is innovation. So selling on global markets, a company is forced to keep up with foreign competitors on a market that don't, they don't know and selling to consumers that they don't know either. And as a result, companies tend to be more innovative, so to differentiate themselves on global market. And that also gives them a competitive advantage that they can bring back into their home market. So really in summary, and this is per um, EDC had commissioned a study that showed that exporters do better than non-exporters. They generate more revenues, they are more innovative, they are more competitive, and all of this leads to longer lasting and stronger Canadian companies. 
So really, I encourage um, companies to go broad because there are so many factors that will help them and become bigger, lasting Canadian companies. Fantastic. And, you know, with our southern border, you know, the U.S. is very close to many, you know, major Canadian hubs and and entering into that market can often be the first steps. We'll we'll definitely chat about entering into the U.S. market first later in uh, today's conversation. When we look at B and your journey in the first time that you exported, the A-Linker, as you mentioned, went to New Zealand, then Australia, the UK, Canada, US. Um, But before you started exporting, at the very beginning of this journey, what were some of the questions or the uncertainties that you had to think about before taking your business global or before even shipping that one A-linker over to New Zealand? What were you contemplating in that kind of infancy of your export journey? We launched with a crowdfunding campaign in the Netherlands, a pre-sales crowdfunding campaign in the Netherlands, because to enter the US with a new device that you don't know what the liability issues are around. <laughs> it's kind of a mm. kind of an interesting thing. Um, so when you want to launch a new product, the Netherlands is a great country to do that. Not because people are susceptible to innovation, but because they're really stubborn. And if you make it in the Netherlands, you've got a very good chance you can make it anywhere. <laughs> I, love I that. am Dutch, so I can I can say those things. <laughs> So you can explore the market in a, in a in a relatively safe way and get feedback from people like, oh, this works, this doesn't work. I also didn't know if it was going to sell. I didn't know who our customers were. Um, I didn't know anything. I just had an idea that manifested into, after 14 prototypes, a bike that was now sellable. So I didn't know what the price was going to be. I mean, the, the price that we needed to have to make it feasible as a company um, I didn't know if that was a sellable price. We're not a medical device, so people cannot like the whole mindset thing around. Oh, I'm um, I'm in the disability world now. I get stuff back from insurances. That doesn't work because we're not a medical device and by design. Because now we're selling the bike for two and a half thousand US ish, and if I were to sell this through certified suppliers, I would probably have to charge six to seven thousand dollars. I don't believe that model is made to serve the people that use the devices. So I do not want to participate in that world. Hence that I say, like, we need to create something that actually supports the health and wellness of people. And as a company, then I try to make it accessible. But so launching in the Netherlands um, taught me a lot of things that made me comfortable to then the year after in 2016, 17 launch in Canada and the U.S., instantly. That was the second pre-sales crowdfunding campaign. And I've been absolutely flabbergasted that people pay $2,000 at that time um, before the pandemic and all the inflation and all that kind of stuff. We had to increase our prices. Um, But pay $2,000 online for something with their credit card, for something that they haven't even tried. I was like, oh, there has to be a demand because if people do that, then that's then there's a way bigger market out there. And I'm learning that, <laughs> that that is really the case. There's a dire need for stuff that is designed with people in mind, not just for people as the next you know thing that people can buy, but really with them in mind, with them involved in the whole design process. Mm. Incredible. So to Micah, what are the biggest struggles that you're seeing entrepreneurs face at the beginning uh, of their global journey, specifically looking at women entrepreneurs? What do you do when you have no idea where to start in that export journey? 
Yes, you know, I will start with the positive news. So according to Government of Canada statistics, the proportion of women-owned businesses that export has increased dramatically, doubling from 5.7% in 2011 to 11.1% in 2017. Studies also show that women, um, they start businesses at the same rate as men, and a 10% increase in women-owned SMEs would add $198 billion to the annual Canadian GDP. However, women continue to face barriers to the growth of their businesses on global markets. So women often cite a business, lack of business acumen and mentoring, as well as the lack of connections and networking. So this is why organizations such as Startup Canada, OWIT Ottawa, and others, which we'll talk about later, I hope, they really play a vital role and they can, they can facilitate knowledge and mentoring for women in trade. Another barrier is the difficulty to access financing. Here comes the numbers again. Um, so women are less likely to seek and receive financing than men. And women-led enterprises in Canada receive only 5% of their financing from traditional banks. So they turn to personal savings, families, credit cards, and other means to finance their business. And as we said, women are starting businesses at the same rate as men. However, they only receive 10% of all venture capital funding in the country, and they are awarded 25% of the asked-for amount compared to 50% of men. So the numbers really speak for themselves. And thankfully, I think that there is a greater awareness and understanding of these barriers and government, business organizations, institutions are really looking to rectify the situation by creating new programs that are specifically geared towards underrepresented groups, such as women, visible minorities, indigenous and LGBTQ2 plus entrepreneurs. Mm. And I think those stats have, have become even worse during the pandemic, especially looking at the amount of VC capital that's being deployed to women entrepreneurs, looking at some of those scaling um, sort of ceilings that we're seeing, particularly around access to finance. Um, and it's challenging. It's daunting to see, you know, there's such incredible ideas and women are, are building such um, lucrative and scalable businesses. Um, and we see this actually through our startup a global program. We have gender parity in that program, which I find so fascinating when you actually look at the total number of women exporters that exist in Canada. It's not, there's no shortage of ideas or great businesses that are out there. How do we really increase and, and get that actual gender parity up and running? Because, uh, you know, time's up here. Uh, but thank you for, so much for providing some of those stats, because I think it really paints um, a helpful picture for the long way that we still have to go to ensuring that women are, are leveraging export and the scaling potential that um, that kind of comes with in those international markets. Can I just add to that that um, the work of Mary Ng has been e exceptional over the last few years, mm. and a network like CEO now called Coralis or Coralis um, is exceptional support for women. Um, and in a world where men don't want to surrender their power, we can see that as a problem that women don't have access, but they don't want us to have access. <laughs> That's, that's the structure. So you can try and focus all on, on all the problems to try and fix them. The system that holds the power doesn't want you to fix those problems. 
Agreed. Yeah, the Women's Entrepreneurship Strategy and in close partnership with Export Development Canada as well. And Michael will definitely tell more. <laughs> tell us more about the, the offerings of EDC, who's a longstanding partner of Startup Canada as well. I'm sure we could go into a whole different conversation here around women specifically in exporting. Uh, but what, what I think we can do next is really go into some actionable advice in looking at the preparation, the research, um, and the really the first steps that you need to look at before your, your export journey. So Tamika, I'm going to pass it to you in looking at that big step for entrepreneurs that they're taking. There's a lot that they need to know before they actually potentially make that first sale in the US, in the UK, um, or somewhere internationally. When it comes to research, when you're just organizing that data, um, looking at the competitive analysis, what is step one in that process? What do entrepreneurs need to figure out? What questions should they be considering? And what answers should they try to find before they actually prepare to export that product or service? Yes, in my opinion, when companies are considering going abroad, it's imperative to answer two basic questions. The first one is, why am I exporting? And we talked earlier about some of the reasons and the factors that motivate companies. So accessing a bigger market, reducing the risk, realizing economies of scale, becoming more innovative. But by answering the question why I am exporting, this would help set objectives, goals, and the ben benchmark to see if this was successful. The second question is, am I ready to export? So this is where companies really look internally at their product and services, their value proposition, the resources, the staff that they have to see if the, with the capacity that they have, they can sustain the additional demands that come from doing business abroad. So, and there's a great quiz on the Trade Commissioner Service website. Um, maybe we can share the link after where companies can take that quiz and this will give them an indication of their readiness. So these are just, you know, starting point questions, obviously, need to do a bigger dive and this is where an export plan will come and answer those questions but also serve as a blueprint strategy amazing we love the trade commissioner service it's such a fantastic resource that is free through the government of canada so definitely recommend checking out uh, what is called tcs or the trade commissioner service for for that tool which is really helpful i totally agree trade commissioners are awesome and it's the place to start they're everywhere in the world and wherever you go um, reach out to them and it's it's unbelievable what they do the the research the support the networking the introductions that they can make locally it's really amazing and there's one book that i would really recommend to everybody it's indigenomics um, and it lays out very clearly what the mainstream world is how that measures what the values are in competitive competitive stuff and you know all that ownership rights IP that we often talk about when exporting IP is always a thing. That's all a Western concept <laughs> and a Western concept to make lawyers rich, honestly. And, and it lays out the indigenous um, view of the world. If I look at that book now, we, we tick all the boxes in what we do in the indigenous views because that's values that actually resonate with us humans. We don't live in a society that is a culture. We live in an economic model, a binary economic model that needs, you know, allows people to, 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 to accumulate more wealth than they need, to take more than that they give back. That's not okay. So that book, Indigenomics, is really, really a good 
easy to read and a very majestic uh, resource, I think, for remembering who we are and what we need to do together. Tamika, over to you. What resources do you recommend to entrepreneurs that are looking to export, looking to go global, um, or to B's comments, looking to um, you know really identify the values of their company and what they are trying to scale and bring into new markets? Yes, there are many, many resources, and it's just a matter of finding um, finding them and the right ones that work for us. Um, so we talked a little bit earlier about the Trade Commissioner Service, um, TCS. So this is a network of Government of Canada agents. They are all over the world in 160 cities around the world, and they really help Canadian businesses engage in trade, whether for export, imports, or investments, by connecting them with international opportunities, funding, and support program. So I will quickly mention three aspects of their mission, which I think are super important for our conversation. The first one is the support to the market research. So the TCS has built over the years an extensive network and a wealth of information of knowledge and of connections that, and they have export guides online or in demand. They have strategic profiles as well that are very helpful to help companies with their export plans. The second aspect is the connections. So they very often participate in trade shows around the world and participating companies can be under the Canadian pavilion, which increases the visibility that they can have to other global companies, suppliers, customers, etc. Often during those trade shows, there are also matchmaking sessions that are organized. So these are really important tools um, for Canadian companies to be able to speak to um, potential buyers. The third aspect is the Can Export program. So the Can Export program support Canadian SMEs and exporters by providing them with financial support and personalized advice to connect with potential foreign partners, pursue business opportunities abroad, and attract foreign investment into Canada. So the companies that are eligible, they can apply online to receive some financing to cover up some of the international market development activities, such as going to a trade show, hiring a specialist, specialist or um, service providers, etc. So these are definitely very, very important resources that I encourage our listeners to, to uh, look into. Uh, the second resource is Export Development Canada, EDC. So EDC is Canada's export um, credit agency. I worked there for six years, as you mentioned. This is a crown corporation that is really dedicated to helping Canadian companies of all sizes succeed abroad. EDC supports Canadian companies' export, but also their foreign buyers with different export financing solutions, risk mitigation and insurance, trade knowledge, and global connections. So for, and I also want to mention that for Canadian exporting businesses that are owned and led by people identifying as women, Indigenous, Black, and other um, dimensions of diversity, EDC has under its inclusive trade investment committed $200 million to invest in companies that are founded and led by diverse Canadians. So such a good tool um, as well. A great program is um, the Trade Accelerator Program. So this is a program that helps SMEs access the knowledge and resources that they need to go on international market and will help them um, with their export plan as well. So TAP is a program that is run across Canada in multiple cities. It's a very good program and I really encourage people to look into it as well because you really get access to those 
experts, industry experts. The bank EDC is there, the trade commissioner BDC is there. And so there is that opportunity to have one-on-one conversation and advice from them, but also get their input and their feedback on the export plan that the companies are looking to build at that moment during the program um, as well. Um, other organization is the OWIT. OWIT is the, o- the Organization of Women in International Trade. This is a global association, and the goal is really to foster international trade and the advancement of women in business. So there is a growing network. Uh, I think now that we are in 20 countries and there are growing chapters all over the world. And uh, so it's really about providing a collective forum to support education, to facilitate information um, exchange and promote networking. So in Canada, there are two chapters. There's one in Ottawa, which I'm the co-president of the board, but there's also a good one in Toronto as well, and also uh, a great tool for, for companies to look into. Fabulous. I love a good rundown of some great resources. That is a fabulous list. Uh, and for anyone looking for additional support uh, through the Startup Global Program, we have connections with the Trade Commissioner Service, Export Development Canada, UPS for shipping and distribution and logistics, understanding many of uh, you know the trade tariffs and, and uh, you know some of those dimensions of exporting, a number of financial institution partners, MasterCard, Scotiabank, et cetera. So definitely check out the Startup Global Program for additional resources there too. Can I add the Asia Pacific Foundation? Because um, go ahead. <laughs> um, I have been invited. That was introduced through then CEO to the Asia Pacific Foundation that does trade missions, women only trade missions to all sorts of countries. And I've been part of the of a few of the first um, the first women only trade mission to Japan, to North Korea, to Taiwan. Um, and, it, and it's fantastic. And EDC and the government and Marrying, obviously, um, they're all supporting that. And it's unbelievable, the, the openings that that gives. And the trade commissioners, of course, and the local embassies. Or, yeah, really cool. Jamaica, did you have another resource to add as well? Not a new resource, but just to say that uh, the program that you have and, uh, for example, another one like TAP, it's really great when resources are colluded into the same place because there are so many resources. If you look online and, you know, different websites offer so many different things, but having, you know, Startup Global or different programs like this that bring those resources together and put them literally in front of Canadian exporters, I think is the best solution so that you have sort of a one-stop shop and it's easier for them to access and talk to the people they actually need to be talking to. Could not agree more. The Startup Women Advocacy Network, SWAN, is a curated group of 13 women-identifying early-stage entrepreneurs who advocate and champion the needs of women entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast. The Prep Academy is a community-based nonprofit organization that inspires and prepares African Nova Scotian students for college and university. They support students with accessing and navigating resources, information, experiences, and opportunities, equipping them with the tools to succeed and chart their own path to success. Their founder and executive director, Ashley Hill, is passionate about student advancement, education, and the development of African Nova Scotian communities. We are so pleased to have her as our Nova Scotian SWAN representative. To learn more, check out the prepacademy.ca. 
Located on the coast of the Arctic Ocean in Nunavut, Uasau soap draws its inspiration from prehistoric Inuit tradition and the Nuna. In Inuktitut, Nuna means everything found on the land and in the sea. Water, ice, animals, plants, rocks, even the spirits and memories of their ancestors. By capturing the magic and wisdom of the Nuna, each of their handmade small batch products replenishes and nourishes your skin. Born and raised in Iqaluit, Nunavut, Bernice Clark founded Uasau Soap out of her passion for persevering and sharing Inuit culture. We are so excited to have her as our Nunavut Swan representative. To learn more, visit uasausoap.com. Visit www.startupcan.ca and head over to the Explore tab. Under Startup Women, you'll find more information about the Advocacy Network and the incredible work of these amazing founders. So let's talk about the costs of exporting and expanding into new markets, because this is one of the biggest questions that we get through our Startup Global program. Any new step in your journey as an entrepreneur, there are often costs associated with it. Sometimes those are foreseen costs unforeseen costs. Um, but using this episode to really share some of these areas where entrepreneurs can feel a bit more prepared before they go into this export journey, B, how did you financially prepare to export? Were there any you know, upfront costs that you encountered? You mentioned uh, you know, increased costs now with supply chain challenges or inflation. Um, what were some of the costs specifically around exporting that you learned along the way either cost more or less or just about <laughs> what you had budgeted for originally? We didn't budget for that at all, of course. You 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 know that answer. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, one thing that was really important in the in the journey of the Alinker, there was no tariff code because it was a new thing. It was a new invention. So how do you get a tariff code that is not going to flag anything and that's going to be on the lowest um, possible uh, international tax import tax? Um, tariff when you when you import into wherever country we we actually created our own tariff code <laughs> and it's based on um other vehicles and then subcategory 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 and we've had some problems with that but generally that gets us into uh into the country so far um for between 1.7 and 2.3% import taxes because it's not a medical device but it is other vehicles and it serves people with disabilities so but that was actually the most important work to do to prevent problems down the line so when you got that baseline right um the rest is just finding local partners relying on i didn't know what a fulfillment center was in the beginning <laughs> i did not know how to think about a distributor i had no idea who that was i didn't know what a share in a company was either <laughs> so uh you've got to learn a lot of things and you've got to like i learned what a fulfillment center was what a distributor does and then we created our own distribution model based on that um, we don't spend money up front if we go to another country because the distributor will buy at least 20 linkers for a distributor cost um, and then sell them locally. So they actually pay up front. What we do is invest in the website for that country um, and with a storefront on the website, etc., etc. And like I've been to Australia, I've been to um, New Zealand to launch the Linker. That's an investment that we're making. It's also my fun, 
That's the only holidays that I'm getting. <laughs> then I get to drive through New Zealand for three weeks and do 40 um, uh, presentations and stuff. Uh, that's that's my that's my kind of holiday. For the rest, the the the, the costs are not. I mean, the pandemic posed a whole different um, problem because just to give a little breakdown on what the pandemic did to us. Previously, I was able to order 150 linkers. We produce in Taiwan because Taiwan is and was and still is. And we're trying to to pivot to something else, which we'll address later. But Taiwan is the country where you go to if you want to have high quality manufacturing, consistent quality manufacturing and good partnerships. Um, we've got a manufacturer in Taiwan that um, pulls from 43 or something different uh, suppliers, pulls all the components, puts that in them, the frame making, then into the paint factory and then in the assembly plant. Um, and um, so the 150 linkers that we were able to to order previously before the, uh, before the pandemic, we got in four months in a warehouse here in the US or in Canada. During the pandemic, that changed the minimum order quantity to 1,000 units, of which we still have to prepay 30% of an increased price. By at least 30%, their price went up because rubber, aluminum, manufacturing, all that stuff, shipping, it's insane. Um, and then we would get them maybe in 24 months. So my delivery time went from four months to 24 months. How do you bridge that gap? How do you have stock in your warehouse and bridge having to pay all that upfront with a minimum order quantity of a thousand units. And this is where EDC comes in. During a pandemic, EDC has secured 75% of my line of credit with City. So I've got a $400,000 line of credit to bridge exactly that, to bridge supply chain. And 300,000 of that is secured, guaranteed by EDC. That is an incredible tool that, that helped us to be able to dig into the line of credit and then by revenue, fill that up again. Um, without that, I don't know how we would have done that because the supply, <laughs> the, 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 the bridging gap is just insane, really. And it's still struggling. Like we've got more in the warehouse now than we're selling. And then the next shipment comes in December only. Like if we're selling out by December, which we probably will, then we are on back order again because it's so rough to estimate that and to manage that whole thing after it was disrupted so hard. And to give an indication about uh, shipping containers, a 40-foot container cost us about two, two, two $2,500 before from Taiwan to the US, for example, to Seattle, 40-foot shipping container. Now it was <laughs> we paid up to $22,000 for one container. It's insane. And it's slowly coming down again, but it was completely insane. And there's no way you can control that. And there's no way, nearly no way that you can explain to your customers what actually happened. Because people before the pandemic didn't even know how to spell supply chain, right? Such a good And now supply chains, people are like, oh yeah, the supply chain to get my food to the supermarket because there were empty shelves. And people are like, what, empty shelves in the supermarkets? Like, yeah, I guess there's actually a supply chain issue. It's like, supply chain, what is that? And that is one of the huge advantages and benefits, I think, of the pandemic 
and I, I really want to focus on the benefits of the pandemic, all the things that we have learned, all the things that have been unveiled. There's so much uncertainty in entrepreneurship on a regular day. Then add these, you know, this awakening around supply chain issues and all of these various challenges and costs and, um, you know, all of these various barriers that people were not anticipating um, and and were really lacking community in so many ways. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we've really seen people come together um, and create support and create, um, you know, different type of in infrastructure that that has made a more meaningful difference. I hope that will we'll kind of anchor us post-pandemic to your point, whatever that looks like. Tamika, do you have any advice on how entrepreneurs can self-audit check in um, and really see what financially they need to get ready before exporting. What advice do you have around the finance prep? Yes, financing is one of the biggest challenges that Canadian exporting companies face, especially for new exporters, they're wanting to tap into new markets and exporters trying to increase their cash flow to complete a contract. So there are many costs associated with doing business abroad, for example, attending a trade show, new marketing material, translating a website, new hires, traveling abroad to meet potential customers, shipping samples, etc. And the cost increase rapidly while obtaining that purchase order, that first purchase order can take months. And then you have to finance that purchase order. And then the payment can take months to, to come after that, right? That's what uh, B was saying before. And so part of assessing if a company is ready to export relates to reviewing its financial health over the past, let's say, five years, but also assessing if it has the necessary capacity and the flexibility to endure that additional, those additional costs that will adversely affect the cash flow as well as the current sales and operations. And so I think that companies should ask themselves if what they can sustain with what they have, the resources that they currently have, but also if they can obtain enough capital or credit to produce the product or deliver the services, and also how they will reduce the financing risk associated with international trade, for example, foreign exchange risk as well. And again, many resources exist. We talked about EDC, TCS, but there's also the BDC, the Business Development Bank of Canada, CCC, which is Canadian Commercial Corporation, and of course, the financial institutions that have a variety of solutions to support companies as they are looking to finance their, their export. Amazing. And, and dabbling into risk, not that we want to be fear-based in this conversation, but I think it's important to uh, you know, be eyes wide open to, to some of the potential risks. What risks do you recommend, Micah, to be aware of as you're exporting? You mentioned um, a couple of different examples in, in your last question, and obviously supply chains. <laughs> That's a, a big challenge at the moment. What other risk areas should we be aware of? Yes, um, there are many considerations to think about, but uh, I will just uh, keep it to the two main ones, um, in my opinion, which are the risk of not understanding the market and as well the risk of not getting paid. So the risk of not understanding the market is super important. We've seen companies export and invest abroad and they are not su successful because either they didn't do a proper market analysis or they miss key elements of that analysis. And so to mitigate this, a proper market analysis, developing an export plan with the help of industry experts, in my opinion, is essential. It's important to analyze consumer preferences, even store layout, distribution channel, cons cultural considerations, etc., because these can become very costly mistakes and ultimately fail an expansion. 
The second risk that I would mention at this time is the risk of not getting paid. We talked about that a little bit. So there's the risk associated to sending a product or providing a, a service anywhere around the world and not receiving the payment. Sometimes companies will ask for advanced payment, but this is this puts them at the competitive disadvantage to others that are able to give open terms. And so again, to mitigate this risk, there is the opportunity to have accounts receivable insurance, and this covers companies in case of non-payment by their foreign buyer. Insuring sales allows sellers to offer more competitive payment terms to win contract without risk. EDC offers a variety of credit insurance solutions. So again, in my opinion, these are the two main ones, but there's also um, intellectual property, political risk, legal and tax consideration, labor laws as well that companies should consider and analyze totally um, as well. And again, this is one of the benefits of drafting um, an export plan to identify those considerations, the risk, and having a strategy and a plan to mitigate those. Amazing. Those are really, really helpful, um, even just terms to start being aware of as you're navigating exporting. You mentioned IP, uh, and I would love to go into that that intellectual property piece, because I think um, often entrepreneurs might think, you know, I'm protected in Canada, that then protects me internationally, and that could potentially put you into some hot water. So when it comes to protecting your business, a product that you're developing, um, and your company overall, what kinds of protection exist for business owners? What types of resources? can we point them to in this conversation? Yes, uh, regarding IP, I think it's it's really essential to look into that. Um, the protection in, in Canada doesn't mean, as you said, that you're protected elsewhere. So it's really important to understand um, how the property rights vary from country to country from time to time as well. So there is a Canadian Intellectual Property Office, which is an agency that delivers intellectual property services in Canada, but also educate Canadians on how to use IP more effectively Effectively worldwide. There are different forms of IPs. Um, I'm not getting into the details of the patents, the trademark, copyright, um, etc. But it is important for companies to understand what it means um, for them, how they are protected, in which categories they fall, because each of the categories is associated to different sort of protections. Um, and so that is something that I would recommend that either going to, um, to to lawyers that are experts in that field so that they get really the industry expert and be a company and make sure that they are protected. Because again, that can be a custom mistake to think that we're protected worldwide when we're protected here. Um, we all have examples of, you know, big, big um, lawsuits that have occurred because there were some, some you know, copies elsewhere, for example, or just on the recipes or the patents of music and things like this, or just the logo and the visual. And this is really um, something that is important for the companies because it's part of their immaterial brand as well. Great comment there. B, when you look at your team at uh, at A-Linker when it comes to exporting, do you have support that looks at IP, that looks at some of these different dimensions? What is the support of, of your company around you helping to make these decisions as you grow? Um, well, we've got a direct team and we've got some people on contract or per hour. Like we've got around the world, um, the A-Linker distributors who are A-Linker users, uh, nearly all of them, except for one, I think. I love that. Yeah, well, that's the best people that can sell the product because they live the life, right? They they live the experience. Um, we've got um, 
uh, an old family friend who happens to be a litigation lawyer <laughs> at the European uh, government. So he's, he's quite good and well-connected. And um, honestly, if it wasn't for investors and their first question, like, do you have a, a patent? I would never have patents because I actually don't believe in patents. Patents, a few hundred years ago, started as an information sharing system. Nobody knows that anymore. But it was information sharing. When, when the Drezin, that two-wheeled walking bike, um, 200 years uh, ago came into the market, within a year, in every European country, there was a variation of the Drezin because the patent traveled around. It wasn't to keep it all for... That's the winner-takes-all concept. It was a sharing system. Like, this is so cool. I want everybody to know this. And so the moment I'm not dependent on investors anymore to say, like, do you have a patent? I will release my patents as soon as I can, because I actually don't believe that that whole system that just serves lawyers and is based on competition and greeting everything towards you is, is a good system. Absolutely. Fair enough. B. <laughs> I think that's an important perspective, actually, in democratizing access to, uh, you know, various products and how things are built. There are other examples, I think, with, uh, you know, much larger groups, I think, with Elon Musk as well. There's so many different, uh, you know, different leaders that are trying to champion that mentality, uh, which is an important one. To Mike, so looking at you know your role at Invest in Canada, um, really identifying, creating, and developing new investment opportunities for global companies. I'd love to dive in um, a little bit in, into this question as well. Can you share more about how Canada specifically is a really reliable investment space for companies? Uh, what the Canadian landscape currently looks like, um, and share your perspective from your role at Invest in Canada. Yes, absolutely. Um, Foreign direct investment in Canada reached a 15-year high in 2021. So global businesses put international expansion plans into action, and Canada was top of mind. Global companies invested $75.5 billion in Canada in 2021. And in fact, Canada was number three in the world for FDIs. We had 736 new projects announced, creating over 34,000 jobs. So what those numbers show is really that Canada is reliable because we were already well positioned for a strong and resilient economic transition, which was only accelerated by the pandemic. Canada is recognized as the best country in the G20 to do business. And for more than a decade, we've led G7 countries in economic growth. Canada is the gateway to North America. We are a trading nation. We have 15 signed free trade agreement with 51 countries around the world, which will allow companies that are established in Canada to reach 1.5 billion consumers from Europe, North America, Asia, and beyond. We're actually the only country of the G7 countries to have a free trade agreement with all the other G7 countries. And just a few assets that uh, Canada presents and just to show how reliable we are as a destination for investments. Canada has a diversified economy and natural, abundant natural resources. For example, our energy is clean, green, reliable. Quebec in particular has 99.8% of its electricity coming from wind, solar energy, and hydropower. We have the lowest electricity rates in North America. We also have an amazing, highly skilled workforce. Canada is the most educated labor force um, among the OECD countries, we have competitive operating costs, 
tax incentives and a competitive R&D environment. So this is really, really important in attracting companies to Canada. And I will just mention the government support at the federal level, but also the provincial levels. The governments are really dedicated to helping companies grow. There are strategies and specific programs to support sectors like life sciences, digital industries, EV batteries, clean tech, hydrogen, etc. And so I think that global investors from all over the world have really are starting to understand better that what Canada has to offer. And invest in Canada, we are really focused on finding the best to invest. There's one thing that um, that that I would like to address is like at the beginning of the of the pandemic when it became apparent that we had to um, order so many lingers in advance we couldn't order more than we had money because uh, there is a limit to that that you can pay forward over two years. Um, so we said to each other like, okay, so we cannot grow in the next few years. Fantastic because now we can go deeper, building our practices who we are as a company. And something that I have dreamt about for a long time is to redesign the Alinker in such way that we can locally produce it. Because previously you couldn't say like, oh, all the manufacturing back to Canada. Oh, no, we can't afford that because of labor laws and all that stuff. There's a crack in that question right now. And I do believe that I can redesign the Alinker such that we can bring back manu- uh, manufacturing back to Canada or North America for that matter, but on per continent. And then redesign it in such way, have cradle to cradle or cradle to grave in in, in mind, build it in the material choices, the labor choices, all that stuff, and make it such that it can be replicable, not expandable. Like we have globalization, but which is growing out of your context. So you don't know the, the scale. You're not in contact with the scale anymore. Um, if you if you think about a local economy and then you replicate the local economy, um, then you could build the plant that we build in Canada, for example, also build that in Africa, that supplies in Africa, eliminate all the international shipping. Um, that's what we're doing right now. Um, and that's a super interesting process. We're doing that with a partner company, design company in Toronto, Cortex, and really exploring like, like if we go into all, if we explore all the ways that we can manufacture in Canada, because there's manufacturing happening in Canada, what do we need to do to translate the Alinker into manufacturable <laughs> Um, uh, ways here in Canada and then we can build a plant that assembles the linkers for example that is at wheelchair level for example so whether you use a wheelchair or not you use a wheelchair when you're in that plant for example and then be able to um, uh, employ people with disabilities as where normally people with disabilities are just discarded as like unemployable I don't believe that I think as, as, as an employer we are um, we need to change to make our workplaces more accessible for everybody. So that's the whole process. And that's not a simple process, obviously, but I'm crazy. And I do things that I dream up and and envision. And, and, and my experience is that if you dream hard enough in where you can see it happening already, you're there, then you can work your way back. 
if you focus on all the problems on the road, you're never going to get there because you're just focusing on all the obstacles and then getting lost in all the obstacles. So I'm a dreamer and I'm imagine and dream are the words in history that brought us real change, right? That is powerful because that's living in abundance. So dare to dream, manifest it back, dare to imagine and really live there and then manifest it back. And then way more is possible um, than, than trying to fix the problems. Stop fixing problems. This is not a problem to fix. Everything that we're facing right now is not a problem to fix. Stop. Imagine how you want to live. Imagine who you want to be in that world going forward to make it livable with each other. Oh my God, we can have so much fun. We can have so much fun doing it. This is not a problem. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Oh, powerful statement, B. I think that's a great post-it moment for, for the podcast today <laughs> in, in, yeah, imagining and, and, you know, having that vision. There's, there's so many, you know, great examples of other, other entrepreneurs just like yourself that are completely reimagining things um, and dreaming really big. And we need that at this stage in, in so many different global crises that, that we're faced with at the moment. Um, that type of spirit is really, really well appreciated, I think, to me as well today. <laughs> So final piece of advice of this very, you know, colorful and and really interesting conversation around global and and exporting be, what would be your key piece of advice uh, to entrepreneurs that are looking to export their product or service? Well, there's something we actually haven't mentioned yet about exporting is you're entering a different culture. People have a different perception of the world, of who they are, of how we live in a very individual uh, 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 world. If you export to Japan, it's a we culture. <laughs> it behaves differently. It really behaves differently. How do you negotiate contracts? It's very different here than it is in the Netherlands, than it is in Japan. So learn. You're a visitor. I, I did 10 years international work. I've always been a visitor in those countries. So it's up to me to figure out what works and how it works and how people communicate with each other. And it's a very... If you do that wrong in Japan, you can forget Japan like that. So building relationships is the core. I mean, I built my company on relationships. We don't have a contract, for example, with the manufacturing in Taiwan. If I'd had a contract, we'd probably be bankrupt because there were finance um, uh, ways that I would have to pay. Um, at one time, I owed him $450,000. And he said, don't worry, I know this is going to happen. And of course, I paid him overtime. But had I um, uh, had a contract with payment terms, I would have been bankrupt. So it's building the relationship, understanding that you're a visitor in that country. And it's up to you to understand how you enter that market and really build relationships with people. Settle down, visit there, have tea or coffee or sake or whatever with each other. But take time to build relationships. Don't jump into contracts and purchase orders and all that stuff. Nobody likes to be talked to as a bucket of money. No one. So build relationships. Make friends. Great piece of advice, B. To Micah, what would be your final piece of advice for potential exporters? Yes, well, B's uh, was really amazing. It's very important, those cultural considerations. And I think that... Um, companies and people here would should take this into consideration as part of their export strategy because 
part of the strategy is also understanding the others, as you said, not only about the money and, you know, the very, um, the distribution, etc. but behind all of this, these are people and these are cultures. And it's very important to understand that and, and to avoid making very costly mistakes as well. Um, I would say that the piece of advice is really to network. Um, we talked about the power of community. Um, you gave a few examples of how this was helpful um, during the pandemic, but also just building that network of people that we can that companies can go to um, for advice, not only the industry experts, but among other fellow exporters. I have seen, I've been in, in the rooms of different programs um, for exporters and the relationship that are created amongst themselves, not only with the industry experts, but amongst themselves. And they kind of do business together as well because there is some synergy, but there's also the opportunity to benefit from the advice um, that is given the best practices. Who did you go to? How did you do this? And and I think that there is the power behind this, and this is how everyone is helping each other to move forward. So, I would say those five to sevens after work are really a great way to connect with like-minded people, people from different industries as well. And this is really um, helpful to move everyone forward um, in their export journey as well. A wonderful note to end on, just the power of community, of tapping into these existing communities and knowing that you're not alone. This is a very daunting, uh, you know, potential next step that you're exploring with it when in your business when you're looking at exporting. Uh, but know that there is an entire community backing you from Government of Canada, from uh, formal programming, from community based organizations. There is so much out there to help you navigate through this. Uh, and I hope that that's been really reflected in today's episode. And I hope all of our listeners are just excited, as excited as we are to enter into this export uh, journey and, and feel supported along the way. B and Tamika, thank you so much for joining us on the Startup Women podcast. It has been such a pleasure chatting with you both. Uh, and we can't wait to see where both of you go next in terms of support, Tamika, and also B uh, in terms of the evolution of the A-Linker. Thank you so much for having us. This has been a wonderful conversation. I learned a lot and I will definitely make sure to follow both of you and see where you go from, from here as well. Thank you for having me. Likewise, thank you for having us. Head to www.thealinker.com to learn more about B, who the A-Linker is for, how it works, and for videos and talks from B about their design and thinking philosophies. To connect with Tamika and to learn more about Invest in Canada and the OWIT Ottawa and Toronto chapters, head to www.investincanada.ca and OWIT, that's O-W-I-T dot org. Thank you so much for joining us on the Startup Women podcast, where we are committed to telling the stories of women entrepreneurs and uncovering actionable advice that goes beyond the surface level. The Startup Women podcast is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles and is made possible with the support of BDC and Scotiabank so we can continue to power women identifying entrepreneurs. Visit startupcan.ca to explore the Startup Women flagship program and access advisory support and free resources. Be sure to check out the show notes to access important links, resources, and information that we mentioned during today's episode.
Thank you for listening, and we look forward to another episode next month.